Uh, if you have a Bible, 2 Samuel 23, but you can hold it with your finger or your cool little Bible bookmark, and then uh, we'll get started. I have with me the Nelson reports, uh, ratings reports for the four most watched sitcom finales. And I want you to guess, all right, what do you think is the most watched, was the most watched final episode of a television show? MASH. Raise your hand if you think it's MASH. All right, that's pretty good. First slide. Uh, who said MASH? That's good. Do you want to know the number of people? I have the reports. Uh, I was 11 when this final episode came out, so wasn't really into it. 105 million people watched and at that time, in 84, that was like, what, maybe almost half the country. So that's a big deal. All right. So, okay, that's it. We'll see you tonight. <laughs> uh, what do you think the next one was? Oh, we got some tension, some tension. Uh, Boy Meets World? No. Uh, Wizards of Waverly Place? Next slide. Cheers. Anybody a Cheers fan? Okay, look, here's the thing. I've rediscovered Cheers. I liked Cheers when it was on. 11 years it was on. That's a long time. Uh, watched it. A lot of character changes, a lot of in and out, you know, but uh, I've kind of gotten back into it. Um, does anybody know the last line of Cheers, by the way? The very last thing said. Sorry, we're close. Give it up. What's your name? Okay, let's... Uh, 80 million viewers saw that one, and it was done live, so that was kind of a big deal, and I think it was like an hour and a half long, but uh, that's good. All right, what's the third one? All right, next slide, there it is. Okay, here's the thing. I was a Seinfeld fan. I still think it's an incredible show, uh, but the last episode was ridiculous. Like, did you guys see that? Yeah. It was just chaos. Like, they all ended up in jail, in a courtroom, and some of the, it was... I thought it was dumb, but, uh, but 76 million people watched that one, and then the final show, what do you guys think? Friends, next slide, yes, friends, 52 million viewers watched this, anybody know the last line of this one? Let's go get some coffee, do you know the, <laughs> you were here last service, weren't you? Okay. <laughs> no, I'm a fan. Um, no, we're big fans. We have all the seasons at home. So uh, anyway, yeah, those are the four most watched television shows in their final episode. Oh, what was the line? Yes, it's true. They said, you want to get coffee? And they said, Chandler said, sure, where? So that was just kind of, okay, never mind. Look, <laughs> okay, I'm going to be honest with y'all. Y'all freak me out because first service is much friendlier. And then I say things from here <laughs> and you're like, so, um, no, they always spent time in the coffee shop. Central Perk, get the seasons. <laughs> Every episode takes place in a coffee shop. So when they say you want to get coffee and they say, sure, where, it's funny. It's irony, all right? Okay. Wow, thank you very much. See you at the evening of prayer. Um, here, here's why we're doing this, and I got a stack of books here I want to talk about uh, for a moment, but here's the question for you is, what is your story? That's the question. And is your story worth the ending? 
That's another question. And what's the arc within your story? What's the major theme? What's happening? What's the choreography? What's the soundtrack? Who are the people? What's the storyline? Is it worth it? And will the ending reflect your story? See, a good ending to a good story, it's all connected. It makes for a great, a great story makes for a great ending. But you can't sort of make up an ending. The ending comes from the story every time. And so you have to sort of think about this question, okay, if my life is a story, if it's a narrative of some kind, what, what is the story saying? Because your life is telling a story. You have to know that. Whether you, if you say, my life's not telling a story, that's your story. It's that you don't think that you have a story. And so your life is proclaiming something, and I'll say this a lot in our next series, but your life is an announcement of something. It's announcing something to the people around you. And I love stories. Um, I love <clears throat> reading about people. Uh, I brought some of my books in for you. Evidently, some people have been up here because my Bill Clinton autobiography has been turned around. So uh, <laughs> there it is. <laughs> some people don't like that story. So uh, I haven't really read it because it's hard to read crayon. But anyway, the... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it's a joke, it's a joke. Um, no, but as much as I could fit in one Ikea bag, I brought in, our, if you've been in our home, it's overrun with books, and I love biographies, I love like stories that people write about other people or about their lives, and even if it's about uh, them, them as well, but um, this is neat, so I'll go through a couple. These are my, uh, oh, this is my favorite, I found this, I thought I lost this, but I found it it is my Leave it to Beaver uh, book. I've had it since about 1985, so it's pretty old. And um, I love this show. <laughs> uh, does anybody like this show? Yeah, I mean, come on. I mean, it's good. Clean, wholesome, fun. Uh, but anyway, I got this in elementary school, and some friends of mine and I were really into this show for some reason. Um, well, the, the, the pickings of TV shows back then was like this and MASH. So... Um, but anyway, I became the president of the Leave it to Beaver fan club in my, high, in my elementary school, partly because I owned the book. So, uh, but this is a cool book. It's got all the stuff in it. Um, oh, this is a cool one. Uh, Hank Aaron wrote an autobiography years and years ago, like in 1970. Let me get the date here. Uh, I think it was like before I was born, 74, so I was born in 73. But this one is signed, so that's kind of a cool, might be stolen by the end of the hour. Uh, so that's pretty cool. I've got, oh, these are all my Bob Dylan books. Any fans? Bob Dylan? One. One. <laughs> got three over here. Last service was like crickets. Like, are you kidding me? Uh, cool story. Beatles? Any Beatles fans? Got the Beatles biography here. Uh, my wife buys me U2 books about every year, and I have a bunch of them. But yes, these are my two coffee table books. The U2 show book is about... Um, all their shows from like 79 to 80 or to 2004 or 5. It's really cool. And then this one here is written by them. That's a pretty interesting one. This is a cool uh, story, Girl Meets God. Anybody read this? Uh, Lauren Weiner was an Orthodox Jew, became a Christian in college. It's a very cool story. I have every Donald Miller book. Any fans? Yes. Uh, they're all memoirs. He really likes himself a lot, but they're very good. Um, I bought this because we go to Disney World every year with my kid, and I was like, what is behind all this? So I bought the Walt Disney uh, about him. That dude is messed. 
up, okay? Um, but makes for a great theme park. Uh, oh, the Prefontaine. Anybody a Steve Prefontaine fan? That's a good book right there. So anyway, oh, bringing down the house. Do you guys know the, the MIT blackjack team? They just steal money from Vegas legally. That's the story right there. That's a good story. Uh, but anyway, I like, I like the stories. Oh, Lance Armstrong? Yeah. The cool thing about that book is it's written before he won all those titles. And the thing about the, that story is, as you're reading it, um, you can sense that, that this book will not be the end of his story. He's, he's so much of this, uh, almost to a fault, he's very aggressive and a fighter. And you can read his battle with cancer and you can feel like this is more about, this is not just about cancer, this is about world domination on the cycling world so but you can really pick up that this is going to continue it's going to continue on so it's really cool but I love I love stories and I just want to come back to that question what what is your story and is your story going to be worth is the ending going to be worth um, your story Uh, turn to second Samuel uh, 23 We've been doing a study, if you're just joining us, or if you have forgotten, we're doing a study that has been in the life, uh, about the life of David, who was uh, Israel's second king, perhaps the most famous king, Um, and we've called the series A Life Undone, and the reason we've called it A Life Undone is uh, quite simple, David's life was never complete, David's life was never uh, wrapped up in a bow and saying, well, there it is. That's the perfect life. I told last service this, if, in fact, if David is the center or the central character in a book about spiritual growth, it's probably a bad book because this guy was never finished. And so he was undone spiritually as a person. I mean, if you follow his life, you see these great successes spiritually and then you see these catastrophes spiritually, Right? And so his life as a follower of God was always here and there and back and forth. I mean, he always loved God, but his behavior and actions didn't always show it. He was undone relationally. I mean, as a father, he had kids. I mean, in his family is incest, murder, abandonment, betrayal, divorce. It's all there. And so as a dad, he's sort of here and there and undone. And as a person, you know, friend to friend, I mean, uh, there were there are stories of great friendships, and then there are stories of uh, great tragedy between people. I mean, in David's own life, there's adultery, there's lying and cheating and stealing and murder in his own world, in his own life. And so, I mean, in fact, just throw the Ten Commandments out there, David could probably put a check mark by every one. And so he was never quite uh, finished as a person. As a, as a person who had friends, as a leader, as a king, uh, there are stories of great success, there are stories of great failure, and um, all that. So, I mean, it's quite simple. It's why I like the scriptures, because they don't, they're not, they're not even great stories, they're not even well-written stories. Some of them are, but when you're just looking at biographies, they're just piecemeal and event-based and sort of chronological, and they're just kind of a mess. They aren't even great fairy tales. They're not fairy tales because they don't have always the best endings. But what I like about the scriptures is the texts they tell us, look, here's a guy, in this case David, here's a guy that God 
chose to use, and he's just like you. He's full of uh, amazing potential to go either way, to do it right or to do it wrong or to mess up or whatever. He's full of all these things, all the potential in the world to do everything right or wrong. He's just like, he's just like us. And so what I want to do to close our series is look at some of the final words of David. The Bible records some of David's final statements in life. It does that a lot, actually, with some, some people uh, in the Bible. It's not unusual. If you Google famous last words, you're going to get who knows how many transcripts of famous people on their deathbed saying sort of the last things of their life. I mean, so this is not anything abnormal. And so the Bible also records some of what David says uh, in his last moments. Are you there, Second Samuel 23? It comes across, the, it comes off the page as a song or a poem, and this was David's background. He's an artist. He's a songwriter, a musician, a poet who became king. And so uh, we have some of his last words back in, you know, they're coming from his roots. And he says, and uh, we'll do the first four verses, and then our main verse is uh, verse five. The oracle of David's son of Jesse the oracle of the man exalted by the Most High, the man anointed by the God of Jacob, Israel's singer of songs. So this is an introduction to who this is. The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel spoke. The rock of Israel said to me, when one rules over men in righteousness, when he rules in the fear of God, he is like the light of morning at sunrise on a cloudless morning like the brightness after rain that brings the grass from the earth. Verses 2, 3, and 4 are David saying, this is what it's like when I was doing things right. Like when God appointed me king. This is back when God was picking kings for Israel. When God made me king, if I did it right, it looked like this. So it's poetic, it's beautiful, it's imaginary. It's like this image of what it looks like uh, in poetic form when I'm when I'm living my life as a king correctly. But this is the end of David's days, and so David is also reflecting. I mean, this whole uh, psalm as it is, or as it were, is a look back. It's a call back to his life. And he says in verse 5, he begins with a question, is not my house right with, what? What does it say? God. Is not my house right with God? You can read this question rhetorically like, uh, yeah, it sounds like that, or it's a question of fear. I know, this is, I know these are my last moments. Am I right with God? So you can read it either way. David doesn't amplify that for us. He just leaves it on the page. Is my house right with God? And so David begins by looking back to the most important thing for him, and that is his connection to God. Now, David's connection to God is not just theological. It's not just like, that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to love God. You're supposed to follow God. David has a, a very deep understanding of his origins in God. Turn to Psalm 139, right in the middle of the Bible. And what we're going to do over the next few minutes is read some of David's writings and just do it that way. So when David asked the question, is my house right with God? It's more than just have I done all the right things for God to love me and to accept me and to save me? That's more than that. 
It's him also looking back. It's a callback to his own origins. He's conscious of where he's come from. Look in verse 13. He's speaking to God here. He says, For you created my inmost being, or my soul. You knit me together in my mother's womb. So in verse 13, David is saying, While I was in there, you were involved in my life. Verse 14, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. That's just great wording to say, that whole birth thing is a miracle. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. Verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. Keep in mind, when David lived, if a woman was pregnant, it was all secret. They, they, they didn't go to the hospital and look at it through some sort of something, a gram. I don't know what those are called. But I have my own son. And I, what's that called? Sonogram. Yes. They don't have those. They didn't have those. All they knew is that something was happening inside of their body. They were getting, you know, larger. It was kicking and moving. They were, the, their sicknesses would come and go. And so they knew that something was happening in there. And ultimately, it was done in secret. There was no way of knowing what was happening. But David says something quite amazing in these days. I was not hidden from you in that place. Although secret to the world, you saw it. You see it. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. So David is aware, he's very conscious that God not just know, doesn't only know him and know about him and is involved in his making, but that David is uh, from the divine, that David comes from the creation of God, just like we all do. Look at the verse on the screen. You know this verse, let us make man in our what? Image. This is God speaking in the very first you know, moment, saying let's make you and me in our image, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We're the only thing in the creation story that bears the image of God. God doesn't make a tree and say, that looks like me, that's a part of me, that is my image. But man and woman get made in the image of God. There's something about you and me that we carry the very image of God uh, with us. If you come from a Catholic background, this is the Imago Dei. This is the image of God, the very picture of God, the rhythm of God, the heartbeat of God is in you. So when people see you, you're the very image of of who he is. I tell people this in weddings. It's just in my script, and maybe I've said this before, but I talk about the vows that are repeated in weddings, and you know them. I mean, if you've been married or been to a wedding, it's the basics like, I take you to be my wife, and there's all these things in there about um, for better, for worse, for sick, or, uh, in health, for richer, for poor, etc. And I talk about how those vows are, they're simply just small, understandable, manageable phrases for the gospel. Because those vows are just a small earthly form of how God loves us. He takes us as we are, right? He loves us for better or worse spiritually. When we're sick spiritually or healthy spiritually, he's there. He loves us in sickness and in health. He will never forsake us, as we say in the wedding. He doesn't leave us. And so I tell couples, look, here's the deal. As a married couple, your life, your love for each other is simply an announcement of the gospel. To which most couples go, oh really, we're done? But your, your life together, your marriage together, is simply an announcement to the world 
when you take these vows, they're not for you. That's, that's how God loves you. And if you can get it even close, then the world will hear about the gospel, about this Jesus, because you are living out the same story in your own life. So we're an image of who God is, and David is aware that he comes from that. He comes from God's creative nature. He comes from his, uh, you know, his creative being, that we are an image of that. We're a part of that. You might know this verse, Ephesians 2.10, that we are God's what? Workmanship. The word for workmanship is the word poimea, and it means poetry. And so it's not just that here you are, we have this kind of person, frame, build, hair color, blue eyes, they all come off of that shelf, and then we have this kind of person, they come from this shelf, and this kind of person. It's not like that, because poetry isn't like that. If I gave you the assignment to go write a hundred original poems, you would either blow me off or you would sweat it out, right? You would go home and go, oh, oh my goodness, and you would sweat this out, because poetry is A, original. It doesn't come stock off a shelf. It's very creative it comes from the creator so when the creator is creating the poem it's from him or her and so it's fought out it's sweat you sweat it out you bleed it and so whatever comes off the page in poetry is personal and poetry is also very unique no poem is the same and so there are just these everything is its own so when we're the image of God the workmanship of God it's not just that we're the poetry of God or we're being written by God or we're the art of God, but we have this unique sort of makeup to who we are. And so God, when the, when the writer says we are God's workmanship, we are his poetry, his art, it's that God, as David describes in the psalm here, when I was in the womb, you were busy knitting me together. And so David is very conscious of his origins in God. And so when he asked this question back in 2 Samuel, is my house not right with God? Again, it's not just about, is, is God still going to love me despite all of, in spite of all my mistakes? But it's a broader question, a 30,000-foot question of, am I still connected to God? Am I still connected to what is the most important? Am I still connected to the person who gave me my story anyway? And so David is very conscious of that. Now, when we gather in this place, maybe you come out of guilt, maybe you come out of tradition, maybe you come because you need it. But ultimately, what must happen in here is that this is a reminder of that, that our origins are not of our own making, but they are of God, that we are only here for a short time, and there is no beginning or end to the Creator, and we come from that. And so this is a good question. When we enter this room on Sundays, is my house not right with God? This is about that. And so David in his final moments is doing this callback. Has my life been about that? Has my worship been about that? Has my leadership been about that? Or has it been about something else? Secondly, look at the second part of this verse 5 in 2 Samuel. David says, has he not made with me an everlasting covenant, arranged and secured in every part? Again, you can read this two ways. It can be rhetorical, as in the answer is uh, yes. God has made a commitment to you. God is committed to you. God is very close to you. Or you can read this the other way as well, where David is saying, somebody please tell me that this is true. 
You can just, maybe he's tugging on the arm of a friend like, uh, please remind me that this is true, that God has not forgotten me, that God is not somewhere else. Turn back to Psalm 139. In the first part of that psalm, David deals with this. I read the whole thing last time, I'm not going to do that. But in verse 7, he asks God these questions. He says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. Like you're everywhere, God. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Like I can't get away from you. That's what he's saying. In verse 11, he says, if I say, surely the darkness will hide me, which David did a lot. I'll just go in here and he won't see. And the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. And the night will shine like the day, for the darkness is as light to you. David was very awake to God's presence, to God's closeness. And so maybe the question in his final words, has he not made an everlasting covenant with me? Like he's still committed to me. Like maybe it is a question of confidence. Or maybe he just wants a reminder that that is true. That God is still with us. The most often uh, stated command from God in all of Scripture is this. Don't be afraid. I mean, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament. There's an endless number of teachings in the New Testament. But the most common thing from God said to people is don't be afraid. And it makes sense. I mean, they show up in angel form and say, you're going to have a baby and his name is going to be Jesus. But that must be prefaced with, I know this isn't normal. Don't be afraid. I have some news for you and it's good. Because ultimately when God shows up, we think, well, this can't be good. Right? What is, what is he doing here? And so the most often said words from God to people in all of Scripture is, look, don't, don't be afraid because I'm with you. And we have this a constant theme of God being with, of God being with, with us, with you, with our efforts, with our lives, with us when we are broken, when we are mended together. He is with us. And so David asks this question, has, is he still with me? Has he not said that he will always be with me? Now, for David, some of this is quite earthly. I mean, he, was been, he had been appointed king by God. This is back again when God was picking kings for Israel. And so David is living out his own sort of this is what God has arranged for me. But at the same time, what's most important with David is, is whether or not his house, his life, his being, his leadership, his friendships, his marriages, he had too many marriages, were right with God. And so this question is about that. Is he still, is he still with me? David was awake to that. Look at the last part of verse 5. Will he not bring to fruition, like to finish, to complete will he not bring to fruition my salvation and there's the word right there and grant me my every desire and his every desire is not stuff and more stuff and more women and more this i mean david's ultimate desire is stated in the verses before but it's just that he is right with god and so david is again whether he's worried or asking a rhetorical question is voicing the same concern that we all have. At the end of this, will God complete what he promised? At the end of my story, will he 
complete what he promised me. And David uses the word salvation. It's the best word that God saves us from ultimately bad stories. He saves us from the wrong story, which is selfishness and going my own way, etc. It's driven by pride. And he's inviting us into his story of redemption and new life and so on. And so David is saying, will he do that for me? Will he bring that to pass? A couple of more passages. Turn to Psalm 103. I got some amens out of this one first hour, so if you feel like it, that's great. Uh, but just a fantastic psalm that David has written about God's love and forgiveness, His grace and His mercy. These ought to be committed to memory, just deep within our hearts. In verse 8, David says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious. He's slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. Verse 10, he does not treat us as our sins deserve, parentheses, right on, or repay us according to our iniquities, another amen, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, there's no measuring tape, by the way, for that, so great is his love for those who fear him, as far as the east is from the west, that's a mind-boggler. Way to go, David. Good wording. So far has he removed our transgressions or sins from us. So David's like, oh, when it comes to God forgiving our sins, it's that far removed from us. He does that. There are other passages in the Bible where it says uh, that God remembers them no more, like that he just forgets. If God is forgettable, it's that he can forget our sins. I mean, that's pretty amazing, right? And so David is in tune with God's graciousness that this whole thing that he utters in his final words, will he not bring to fruition my salvation? And of course, the answer found in David's own words are yes, God does that. God continues to write that story of salvation and redemption and new life in all of our lives. Turn to Psalm 51. These are David's words uh, following his adultery with Bathsheba. So these are pretty personal. But you will find if you can trace and connect the dots, when David comes out of his deepest, darkest moments, his best writings happen. And if you think about artists, musicians, songwriters, um, that's when it happens, right? Okay, this song is amazing. Can you tell me about it? Oh, yeah. It was a death. It was an abandonment. It was a divorce. It was etc. It's never like, oh, yeah, I was getting ice cream at 31 Flavors, and it just came to me. It always comes from pain. Which I said last service, I always think about what I want my son to do, and initially it was like, man, I want him to be a rock star. And then I was like, no, because that means he has to hate his parents. So no music lessons. So, uh, Verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew. There's that word, like save, fix, recreate. A steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Isn't that how we feel when we come out of it? God, just fix it and make it good again. Make it sweet again. And grant me a willing spirit 
to sustain me. In other words, make it good again and, 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 and see to it that I can hold that line, that I can hold that rhythm. And then I want to put this verse on the screen for you. Paul says this to the Philippians, be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you. So this is about God is working in you. He's writing something into your life, that he's busy at work. As David said, when I was in my mother's womb, you were working. Uh, this is where it begins. And so Paul was saying, he who began that very work in you, and in this case, obviously it has to do with them hearing the gospel, responding to Jesus, rerouting their lives, and so on. He who began that work in you uh, will carry it onto completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So when David says these words, will he not bring to fruition my salvation? Paul's saying the same things to the church in Philippi. Be confident of this, which means that maybe they weren't, and maybe you aren't, but he's saying be confident of this, that he who started working in the womb will be faithful to complete it in you, that it will be brought to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So to complete, that God is still working within our stories. And even in David's last moments, is God still doing it? Is he still connected to me? Is he still working through his promises for me? Is my house right with God? Is he still near? Is he still with me? And will he forget about me or will he judge me based on what I've done or what I haven't done or will he bring through on or he come through on his promises in my salvation and so God again is still working within your story in my story he's still creating he's still editing there's something that he wants to complete to finish and there's an ending that he has in mind this is a tricky verse to use but verse uh, John 3 16 because we all know it right it's at every football game but for God so loved the world that he gave his own his one and only son you know this correct but it's such a it, it's I've never preached on this verse because I don't want to because I don't really it's so it's so intimidating to me uh, and it's so familiar but uh, let me just give you a little bit here uh, for God so loved the word there is agape this is this irresponsible everybody gets loved kind of love most of us have conditions you know love that guy I don't like that guy but God has this sort of irresponsible, it's the parable of the sower where the sower is throwing seed on every kind of soil. And we always think that's the parable about the soils, but it's really about the sower. This is how God loves. Hard soil, sure, they get it. Rough soil, yep. Thorny, yep. Great soil, yep. Everybody gets it. So God so loved the world. The word for world is the word cosmos. That means everything that he's made. He just loves it. It's good. And that includes you and me, that he gave his one and only son. This is Jesus. This is God in the flesh. This is the Christmas story. It's Emmanuel, God with us. He came here. It's his, he came into history. That whoever believes in him, which sounds like that knocks the verse down to like, oh, this is a uh, Sunday school children's thing because it sounds like believing in Santa Claus. If you believe in him, if you think he's real, then you get, you get to live. But remember, the people who crucified Jesus were quite aware that he was real. Do you believe that Jesus existed? Well, yeah, I put a nail in his wrist. I saw him die. I buried him. So that's not what that means. To believe, when John writes these words, to believe, it means to reroute your story in God's direction. It means to look and to listen to the things that Jesus has said and to accept 
his challenge to follow him, to be a part of him, to cancel, you know, to cancel the, uh, the, my own schedule of trying to create my own story, but to say, look, I give my life back to God, who it comes from anyway. And so to believe in Jesus is not, I believe he existed or didn't, it's that I believe in what he is about. And so in the ancient sense, when the early Christians believed in the name of Jesus, it was essentially that they were turning their entire lives in his direction. That's called repentance. That's what that means, just a small picture. He who believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. The phrase eternal life is the kind of life that God lives. It has no beginning, it has no end. The lives that we live, they have a beginning and an end, but God is inviting us into the kind of life that he has. And it's this no beginning, no ending sort of thing. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, please impress that on your hearts, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. We all, but whoever does not believe stands condemned what? What does it say? This is not about after you die. This is already, he's saying. He who believes in Christ turns his life over, back over to God. He who reroutes his own story into the direction of God's story is not condemned. He's living a new kind of life. But he who does not do this, is, uh, he says, is condemned already. So you can just say it like this. He's, he's living in a dead-end story. It's a bad movie. It doesn't have a great ending, and we all know it. How many times have you been to a movie and you're like, I'm leaving halfway because this clearly is going nowhere. And so I want to put this on the screen. It just comes from my notes. The story God is writing is one of resurrection, new creation, redemption, and new life. That's clear. Through the resurrected Jesus, God is making all things new. This comes from Scripture. He's editing this world one life at a time. So God has something he's trying to complete, not only in your own life, but in his world. And he is inviting us to get in that story, to be saved from a bad movie, if that's, the, if that's what you want to visualize it as, with a dead-end plot. And that's simply that you and I are writing our own stories, that we're just waking up every day and saying, this is what I'm going to do for me, where you and I are writing our own lives, our own stories, but God is calling us to give our stories back to him. So I just come back to the first question, what is your story? Is it your story or is it God's story in you? Which one is it? And I think if we're honest, we go back and forth from those. Today it's my story, tomorrow it's his story. If you're a traditional Southern person, it's Monday through Saturday is my story and Sunday is his story. And I can say that because I'm from here, so I got it. But that's somehow, sometimes how we do it. But is it his story in you is the question. And so David says, am I not right with God? Is he still with me? And will he complete what he started? I would be willing to bet that at the end of our lives, those will be the same questions that we all have. I know those are the questions I ask as people, as I attend people's funerals or do their funerals. Was their house right with God? Did they know that God was with them? And were they confident that he would finish what he started? I did a funeral of 
uh, a friend that is a part of this church. He's younger than me, and so it was a very unfortunate uh, funeral when he, when he died. It was very unfortunate. Um, and a lot of people spoke at the funeral. I was one of several that, uh, that spoke, and um, my job was just to do the, the scripture and to talk about death and etc. But everybody else's job was to talk about uh, the person whose name was Adam. And um, interesting thing about it is I'm sure that Adam did a lot of great things at work. You know, he had a job, so I'm sure that like, I'm sure he did a lot of cool stuff at work and was successful here and there, but no one talked about that. No one. And I'm sure like everybody else, I'm sure Adam had like stuff, like stuff that he was happy about, proud of, stuff that he had saved and bought and purchased and just, you know, had a collection of things or whatever, but like no one, no one ever mentioned that. They never do, by the way, unless it's just a cold-hearted, this guy or this girl just cared about nobody but him or herself and check out all the stuff they have, plus the funeral home is empty uh, because they didn't care about anybody. But those things were never, and I didn't speak, I mean, it was like 40 minutes before I even got up, and so it was just this one after another, these stories of not about anything he accomplished, not about anything that he had, uh, or even the influence, so to speak, that he had in his world of work or whatever, but it was all about two things. It was all about uh, the friendships that he had made and cultivated, and it was about his uh, love for Jesus, both of which are imperfect, not only in his life, but in our life, and so, uh, but that's all that was spoken about was, this is this is the effect he had on me as a friend, as a mentor, as a whatever, and then this is, and it comes from his relationship with Jesus. That's his story. And like, like your story, his story, and my story is, fil- is filled with um, imperfection, just like David's. I mean, so, yeah, when you read the story of David, or anybody for that matter in the Bible, with the exception of Jesus, just be prepared for messy stuff. But again, as I said in the beginning, it, it brings me back to this great, um, this great excitement that God just takes people and just uses them as they are, and you know, and they live their life in, and they allow God's story to live through them. And sometimes it sounds great, and sometimes it it fails miserably. But how does your story end? or how your story ends is greatly dictated by how the story is being lived right now. And if it is about anything other than the origin of your story, then it has a bad ending. And it may have a bad plot. And I don't say that to be freaky or scary. I'm just saying, as the scriptures say, you're condemned already. You're just a walking, talking aimless. You're not connected to the main writer of the story, who is God. And so I want to pray uh, for just a moment and invite you not just to think about that, but to, to, uh, to come into the saving grace of Jesus. Because that's the story he's writing, whether you're in it or not. That's what's happening in people's lives 
as I said, he is editing the world one life at a time. And the scriptures say there will come a day where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. And that's the story. That's the ending of the story. And he's inviting you into that. If that's you and you have a prayer card still on your seat, we'd love to know that. You can bring it up and drop it in the basket, uh, or you can leave it on your seat or bring it to me. It doesn't matter. We just really want to pray with you and uh, be a part of that. Um, Let's stand and pray together, and then we'll sing. Father, thank you for your son, Jesus, uh, who came here. Uh, taught about you, said, uh, said in very clear language what it means to follow you, to trust you, and, um, and God, many of us in the room have done that. We've said yes uh, to you. We've said yes to uh, what you're up to in the world, and we've given you our lives. We said, look, you, you take it. You take the pen. You write the scenes, and I'll act it out. But God, it's true that all of us, whether we've done that or not, all of us uh, sort of go our own ways and we take a break from what you're doing and we do what we want to do and when we come back to you, it's this rubber band sort of back and forth. It's just like the story of your servant David and um, we thank you for his story because it reminds us of that. It reminds us that following you is not about getting it all together and then saying yes, but it is about trusting you to complete in us what you've started And it's not just what you started when we, uh, you know, became a Christian or whatever, but you have been working in us from the moment you were putting us together in the womb. And so, Father, I just uh, lift up this room to you. I lift up my own life to you that, um, that you will just take what we are and that you will use that for your glory, for your fame, for what you are doing here in this place, in this city, and as we pray deeply tonight uh, about what you are also doing around the world and help us as a church to get in your story and when we again gather tonight that's what that's about Uh, we love you and we pray all these things in your son's name and everyone said amen let's sing together